Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, there is continued backlash over the revelation of hashtag Sewergate. Has the public trust been lost here in Hamilton? We're also joined by Councillor Maureen Wilson, who speaks about the cover-up of that incident. And uh, Minister of Health Christine Elliott was in town earlier this week to announce that Hamilton will be one of the first cities to undergo Ontario's health care overhaul. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with on the show today, we're going to pick up uh, where we left off yesterday with the uh, sewage spill issue that uh, has been front and center. And uh, based on the response that we got from our interview with uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger yesterday and the uh, discussion that uh, that followed that uh, with Laura Babcock from Power Group, uh, this is obviously a, a, an issue that's not going to go away anytime soon. Yesterday, the mayor did address the uh, the issue for the uh, the first time. He had been out of the country, of course, when this story broke a few days ago. And uh, there's been a great deal of backlash. City Council obviously is going to be dealing with that uh, today when they meet. And we're going to talk with one of those councillors in just a little bit. But first of all, though, I want to bring uh, John Best into the uh, conversation. John, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, and he's been following this story since its inception just a couple of days ago. John, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. My pleasure. It seems as every time there is a quote-unquote controversy or scandal, depending on, I guess, what word you want to use here, uh, at the moment, John, it always seems to be the worst and the biggest that we've seen in quite some time. Uh, and, and I don't want to fall into that that habit but with this particular incident, but uh, judging from the backlash we've got on this and the fact that this is a story that, as we say in this business, seems to have legs, uh, this is pretty significant. It's not going to go away anytime soon. No, it's a it's a huge story, and uh, I was uh, I listened to the to the, your program yesterday, and uh, I heard the mayor come on, and you know just to back up a little bit and talk about communication because really that's a big piece of what's what's really at stake here. Um, you know, normally when you think about public relations and messaging, uh, you think of it as being kind of a soft art, uh, you know, a dark art with really no no science to it at all. But actually, uh, the Canadian Standards Association, or its successor, um, actually took a look at, uh, you know, uh, ways of communicating in a time of crisis, and uh, they, they came up with a little checklist that you can use. Like, if you're going into a crisis and you're trying to communicate it to the public, um, you, you sort of look at the environment that you're operating in, and, the, and that tells you whether your message is going to be accepted or whether it's going to be rejected. So the things that make a, a message less acceptable are things like operating in a climate of low trust, the benefits aren't clear, people don't have control over it, involuntary exposure, that certainly uh, applies here, no alternatives, again, it just happened, uh, unfair distribution, uh, human origin, again, uh, as opposed to natural origin, uh, high media concern and high symbolism. So somehow, with this incident, they've managed to tick every box uh, for something that makes it very difficult to communicate a positive message. And, uh, you know, I sort of look at, you know, I think we have something over a dozen uh, PR specialists working at City Hall now, plus the mayor's own staff. And uh, his first words on the topic are to try to give us a lecture on combined sewer overflow 101. 
Yeah, and, 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 and I, I found that rather frustrating. Uh, and, and we tried to steer the conversation back and try to get some, some response on that. And, it, and it, I think it, it, it points us to a, a much more elementary question about this, John. Uh, nobody is accusing the mayor or anybody on city council of allowing this, this leak to happen. Nobody's saying, hey, Councillor so-and-so opened that gate and left it open for four years. We, that was, that's a big problem, and that's something that needs to be explored and discussed, and there's got to be some culpability found. But I'm not sure council even understands what, what the anger is, is actually justified towards them about, and it's the fact that it's how they handled it. It's not that this incident happened. It's how council handled it that I think has got everybody justifiably upset. Well, and it's not just this incident. I mean, it's, uh, you know, this is happening against a backdrop of all kinds of sleazy actions that we've seen over the years, whether it's uh, the combined silence by all councillors on the problems at the Waterfront Trust. Uh, you've talked about this uh, this week, and, and I'm aware of it as well, that uh, even stuff that goes in front of council, that agendas are manipulated, reports are manipulated, staff checking in with councillors before they write reports. Uh, then we got the Red Hill slippery issue. Uh, you know, it goes on and on. So they're, they're, they start out with very little public trust, and then something like this happens. And so it, it just seems like same old, same old. And that's, uh, I think, the reason why the paper, <laughs> the Spectator today, is just filled with outraged letters, and I think that's the third or fourth straight day. Well, and so is my inbox here at, at the radio station, and, and it's it's ongoing. Uh, and, and, and I'm telling you, it's passionate as well. I'm, the, the message here that I, I'm not so sure, just from, from judging from some of the comments I've seen from some of the people on Council O, John, is that I don't think they understand that this is about trust, and, and this is what it comes down to. And, and I mean, I've, I've been in public office, and so I, I understand the, the pressures and, and, and the inherent danger, I guess, of, of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. But trust takes an awfully long time to build. It can be gone in a second, and it takes a lifetime to try to reestablish it once you lose it. And uh, and these guys are on the precipice right now. If they haven't already lost the public trust, they're very close to it. Well, I don't think it was there in the first place, quite frankly. I don't think there was a good point. Uh, uh, there was any money in the bank, so to speak, before this incident. So, uh, you know, we we have a, a problem here, and and the public has to take some responsibility. I mean, they they uh, whenever elections roll around, they tend to go back to familiar names. They don't really dig into anything. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, what what you might see here, and, uh, you know, if people are really that outraged, and, and certainly the letters, and by the way, letters to the editor, it's a lot different than the Twittersphere where you can just pound something out with your finger and thumb in 30 seconds. Uh, the letters to the editor are people who actually know how to write. Um, they sit down, they write a letter, they send it into the newspapers. So, these are, and, and by and large, most of the letters, even though they express outrage, are very thoughtful. They're, you know, they're not just screaming. They're, you know, there's there's good points being made. So, you know, there's there was very little gas in the tank in terms of trust to begin with, and this this has really uh, just nailed it. But if people are really outraged, and many of the letters talk about change at City Hall, the time to organize that activity is right now. If we wait till Labor Day three years from now, and then, you know, a bunch of people come forward, they're, they're just going to be sacrificial lambs. You have to organize on a ward-by-ward basis, and uh, that's the only way you're going to achieve any, um, 
any change if, if you think changing faces is the way to solve the problem. Well, I'm not even so sure that that is the, part of the solution here, John, because let's face it, if we look at the reality of this situation, as the story starts to unfold, this happened earlier this year, of course, there were new right. faces on that council, John. They, and, and they seem to were. fall into lockstep with this. Now, I'm not so sure if it was a unanimous vote, but, I mean, they kept their silence until the story broke. Then all of a sudden the, the apology started to flow. Yeah, uh, true enough. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what the solution would be because I think uh, the new councillors particularly uh, have just gone to council school. And uh, I'm sure one of the things that's drummed into their head is that there's actual personal liability involved in uh, breaking uh, council confidentiality so they'd have that fresh i'm not trying to make their case but uh, you know they and and they're new uh, you know they're just new this is what would that be january would that be their third meeting second meeting so you know uh, I'm, I'm prepared to cut them a little slack but um at the end of the day uh, you know it's obvious that they'd already hired outside counsel and uh, I'm sure that uh, it's pretty daunting to be sitting in a meeting. You're paying outside counsel. I think the price tag I saw was over sixty thousand dollars. So, and, and to what end, John? I mean, what what the, the legal advice that they tell us that they received there was that well, yep. it could increase their liability if they went public with this. No, I'm I'm not a lawyer. I don't get into that sort of thing. But that seems rather incredulous, especially in the fact that now that the story's broke, they're still liable just as much as they would have been as a matter of fact they might have been less liable if they if they'd come clean right at the beginning when this happened to say look at we you know we just found this and we're going to do something about it well and i heard the argument yesterday uh that that we were going to come clean but we we're going to wait until we get the environmental report well as far as i can see the environmental report would only make things worse because it surely it would identify how much damage has been done and at this point, we're only speculating. We know how much sewage flowed into the lake, but we're not sure, you know, exactly what the impact is. The environmental report presumably would start talking about what the actual damages were. So the other thing is the, so Shadoke Creek, uh, you know, the flow went through Shadoke Creek into uh, Coots Paradise. That's all public land. Um, so when you're talking about lawsuits, who would be the private property owner that would that would launch a lawsuit. I mean, I guess you could launch a class action lawsuit about, you know, you've damaged our collective watershed, but you know, it's not like uh, soot on people's uh, cars and you know those kind of issues that we sometimes get. Um, you know, who would be the damaged person other than the public at large? Well, and and therein lies the problem, uh, and and the other element to this too. And you talked about you know the city's. Uh, rationale, if you can use that term, uh, that they wanted to wait until they got the environmental impact that this was going to have, then why didn't they talk to their partners in, the, in this endeavor, which includes, of course, the Bay Area Restoration Council, uh, the RBG, the City of Burlington. You heard Marianne Mead Ward, the Mayor of Burlington, on the program on Monday with, when Rick was sitting in here, and, and she was very upset about this because they're putting money into this as well. And, and the city decided, we're not going to tell anybody. I mean, they all found out about it at the same time you and I did. Well, they did, and uh, I guess if it's a gag order, it's a gag order. But uh, and but again, it goes to the issue of trust. Uh, obviously, uh, there was a lack of trust that if it got beyond even to other municipalities or other bodies, that it might leak out that way. I mean, the reality is, if your public relations strategy is that people won't find out, uh, you're in trouble because they always will find out. Um, now, just speaking of some of those groups. I, I don't know what they all do, but uh, 
I always assumed, and I, I, I think a fair number of people would assume that with BARC and RBG and all these outside organizations, that there was routine uh, water monitoring going on, plus whatever the city would be expected to do. And, you know, it's hard to understand uh, why the, uh, you know, there must have been a tremendous spike in E. coli and all these other things that come out of sewage. And the fact that there didn't appear to be anybody noticing it, even though it had not been announced, and uh, I just find that rather boggling. I I just assumed there was uh, routine uh, water monitoring going on in the Bay. I mean, we spent the last 20 years uh, setting up organizations to to clean up the bay, and and uh, one would have assumed that there, there that somebody would have noticed, uh, you know, what must have been a tremendous spike in uh, in uh, you know these harmful uh, products. Well, John, there was a report on CBC News uh, yesterday, uh, which, by the way, is another embarrassment. Here's Hamilton, of course, front and center on the national stage again for the wrong reason. Uh, but they talked yep. about a, 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 actually a resident from that area that actually put a complaint into the ministry, I think it was about a year ago, about a foul mm-hmm. smell that was coming from Coots Paradise. Uh, now, as this gentleman explained it, uh, he said he never really heard much in the way of feedback. So, And that's another problem here, by the way. So the ministry was aware of this, and the ministry was aware of this after the city discovered this as well, and they said nothing. I mean, you know, and, and I know that counselors insisted, well, there was no cover-up here. Uh, the story, of course, that we saw yesterday that Matthew Van Donegan and the Spec reported was that the ministry instructed the city that they had to notify and put a notification up that this was happening, and uh, it, it was not they in a public place. They put it in place. a lunchroom. They put it in a lunchroom in a city building that, that was off limits to anybody but staff. So, don't, yeah. you know, I mean, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, I mean, come on. Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting situation. Um, I'm curious as well. I mean, I guess, you know, things take their course, but if this happened last January and the ministry was uh, notified in January, we're now almost into December, how long does it take to produce this report? The other thing that, that bothered me is I contacted the city yesterday, say, okay, the cat's out of the bag. Can we see the report from last January? And I get a note back saying, well, no, it's a confidential report. Well, it's been leaked to the spectator. They've, I'm sure, gleaned the the most salient details. But still, you'd like to see the whole report and see if there's anything else in there. God, there might even be some mitigating stuff in there. But uh, why is that report not now on the city website? Well, it's a question we're going to ask. The council's meeting later on today, and we're going to try to delve into this a little bit further. John, as always, thanks for the insight into this. Great having you on the show again today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Still outrage, and lots of outrage every time we bring the subject up, and I can understand fully exactly why people are so angered by uh, with the revelation that we have now about the uh, the Coots Paradise uh, spillage that occurred over a four-year period. We all know, I think, some of the facts anyway. And I would imagine at uh, the city council meeting later on today, there's going to be a much more full discussion about that. But still a lot of questions, and uh, not a whole lot of people on city council actually jumping up to say, well, okay, let's let's talk about this. Uh, one who has, though, who has some very strong opinions on this is the council for Ward 1, Maureen Wilson. And uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to try to uh, shed some light on this. Maureen, thank you for uh, joining us on a very busy day today. 
Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me. I, I, a couple of things, and I understand. I want our listeners to understand right off the outset here that uh, that you are bound by confidentiality, and it's it's a very strong uh, message that we have to send here. Uh, that there are some things that counselors just can't say from an in-camera session because I don't want to hold you liable for situations like this. So, uh, if we come close to that line or cross that line, uh, by all means, remind us about that as we go through some of these questions. Thank you. Uh, the one that I had in, I don't know if you heard it, any of the interview I did with Mayor Eisenberger yesterday, uh, but his his explanation in part when we'd asked why it took so long for this uh, report to actually come to see the light of day, uh, the mayor suggested, and I'm going to paraphrase here, uh, that he wanted to get all the information, he meaning counsel, I guess, at the same time, all the information, the investigation had been completed before they decided to make this a public document. Uh, and and the, I juxtapose that explanation uh, with how City Council has handled the Red Hill situation, uh, where they announced that there was a problem and then announced that they were going to do the investigation. Why did you do it the opposite way when it came to this issue as opposed to how you handled the road? Now, I understand this was first and that one was second, mm-hmm. but it just seems as if there's, there's, there's no consistency here. Um, y- y- off the top of your interview, you uh, referenced um, me being bound by confidentiality, but I guess I would answer it this way. There are some of us, and I have always been consistent on arguing for uh, the interests of public health and in the interest of disclosing as much information um, that we need to um, when talking to this matter. So in relation to the Red Hill and in relation to this, I know I have been consistent. Were you uncomfortable with the uh, the council decision to to move forward in the in the fashion in which they did? Uncomfortable is probably a grand understatement. I, I mean, I, the reason I'm asking that, and, and in the interest of full disclosure, you and I have known each other for an awfully long time, and I know this is your first term on city council, but you've been associated with municipal government in, in various ways for a long, long time now, and, and you know the inner workings, you know how things are supposed to work, and how sometimes they don't work as well as they should. Uh, and and when I'm, I, and I'm going, we'll never know what happened behind closed doors. We'll never know if there was a vote taken or any of that sort of stuff. I mean, that's part of the confidentiality. I get that. But I'm getting the sense that you and, and at least a couple of other people on city council uh, did not necessarily think this was the right way to go. But obviously you, you were outvoted. I have a motion that will be going uh, forward this evening for the consideration of council. And I think if you read that motion in its entirety, it's pretty revealing of my position on matters of, of this nature. So I can say to my children and to my spouse, to my neighbors, and to the residents of Ward 1 that I have argued consistently for matters on whether it pertains to the Red Hill, whether it pertains to this, and I, I trust those same principles will guide me in the future if it pertains to another matter, that the only currency that public entities like governments have is if we are able to build and retain and work on a daily basis to maintain the trust and confidence of residents. That's the only thing we deal in. And if we rupture that, it does untold damage And my motion speaks to the efforts that we now must make as a municipality to try and rebuild that trust. And rebuilding that trust starts with a few things. It starts with an apology. The city of Hamilton must issue a formal apology to the residents of Hamilton. 
for our failure, excuse me, for our failure to um, publicly disclose information pertaining to the volume and the duration of this discharge into Shadok. It starts by us disclosing all the consultant reports related to this discharge. It starts by us providing an inventory of all water samples taken in that body since 2014. It also starts that we ask the minister to, in his uh, scope of this investigation, that he address the concerns raised by the Indigenous community as early as 2015 and 2016. It also involves that we direct our public health officials to immediately report back to us and the public on any health-related um, incidents associated with exposure. And it also means that we provide a full accounting in a document of when the mayor and the members of council were first apprised of this situation, dating from June of two, as far back as June of 2014 to the present. It also means, in my motion, that we direct staff, I'm asking for them to public, publicly release the August 2018 report respecting the Shadok Creek contamination considered by the previous council. And it is my understanding that the previous council had at least three to four confidential updates on this matter, some in writing, some otherwise. Maureen, to that point, and, and I'm, I'm glad you're, you're giving us this, this, this information. I think this, this is important for people to hear uh, the direction, hopefully, the council is going to maybe take later on this afternoon. It's going to be interesting to see the colleagues. But why is that information that you've just referenced? You've talked about a couple of reports that were also confidential. Uh, <laughs> Why, why, why are they confidential? I mean, this is public information. We own this piece of property. We own Shadow Creek. We own Coots Paradise. Uh, there are many, many partners, as as you know, uh, involved in this community, including you know the Bark and of course the RBG and and well the City of Burlington, of course our neighbors from across the way, that 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 have put money and, and a lot of time, blood, sweat, and tears into this as well. And it seems as if everybody's been shut out here. Well, as you know, there. The Municipal Act sets out certain provisions that have to be met, certain requirements for a report to be considered um, in camera, so in confidence. Um, it is always the choice of the governors, so members of council, to decide whether they wish to um, maintain and keep that report confidential. We can receive advice, and that is absolutely the responsibility of the solicitor, our lawyers. But it is ultimately the responsibility and choice of the governors around that table on whether they choose to keep any item, any report, in confidence. And therein lies the, uh, one of the concerns that I had yesterday in my conversation with the mayor, as he explained uh, his rationale anyway for, for not put, making this a public report. Uh, and it was simply, uh, again, to paraphrase that, well, they received legal advice that they were not supposed to do that. But the key word there, Maureen, is advice. I mean, I, I know a number of times, and I'm sure you do in that, your time on council, I'm working within municipal government, that council will ignore legal advice or advice from anybody else uh, from staff if they so choose. And they chose not to in this particular situation which begs the question, why? What were they concerned about, and why didn't they want the public to know about this? Correct. So 
so here is the line of um, that you uh, spoke of at the beginning of this interview. There, <laughs> I cannot speak to 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 those matters. All I can say to you is that it is always the choice of the elected governors, in this case council, to decide whether information is kept confidential. And I can also say to you that the motion that I am bringing forward tonight speaks to the principles that guided me, has guided me since being elected, and will continue to guide me on this matter, on the Red Hill matter, and every other matter. I, I, and again, the question that we're going to be asking you and your colleagues, of course, is, is you know, how do you, how do you rebuild this? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious from the reaction we've seen over the last couple of days that whatever trust was left between the, the community and city council right now has been seriously damaged, if not broken. Uh, and and the, the question that I think we all need to ask ourselves here is, how do you rebuild that? Uh, you, first of all, you must apologize. If... if it, for, and you only apologize if you believe you've done something wrong, and I believe and uh, we have. We must apologize. You, you don't, you're not delivered public trust. You must work for it. You must earn it. You must sustain it on a daily basis. If you believe you have ruptured that public trust and wrong has been done, you must apologize. And the only way you have a chance at earning back that public trust is doing the hard work, and it begins by full disclosure, so the public can see all the information. One of the things that that is really bothering me, and and just based on some of the things that I've received, the emails and tweets that I've received over the last couple of days about this, Maureen, and it goes back to that issue of trust. Uh, in in both incidents, and I know that there are apples and oranges with the Red Hill situation and what's going on here at that Shadow Creek and, and at Coots Paradise. Uh, Councillors themselves, to a certain extent, I guess you could make the argument, we're not culpable of anything. There's something, maybe it was staff, I don't know exactly what, those investigations are ongoing. The the, the thing that rankles an awful lot of people right now is how council handled this. Uh, and to suggest that, well, there's some culpability. If that's the way it's going to be, uh, then by all means, do that explanation. But this is this is this is on council. It's it's not the deed. It's not the event that is bothering people. It's it's how council does this. Do you do you get the sense? And I don't expect you to to speak for your colleagues, but do you get the sense that that, that they get that message? All I can say is staff aren't elected by the people. Members of council are, and members of council are are responsible to the people. And and they have to obviously abide by those decisions. And and but I'm, I, we have to wonder ourselves right now about the mindset that goes into a situation like this. And for this to drag on as long as it did, uh, you know, considering the fact. And and again, one of the other comments I saw from one of your colleagues was that well, we talked to, to public health about this, and they ensured us that there was no imminent danger. Well, how do they know that if they don't have all the information? My motion tonight speaks to the need for full disclosure. Have you talked to your colleagues about that? I mean, obviously, it's, it seems to be common practice that if a, a councillor is going to present a motion uh, to do with anything, that invariably there's some informal discussion with some of the colleagues to give them a heads up as to what's coming. Have you had those discussions? Yeah, the motion takes um, very much the form which was put out in public and absolutely circulated to all my uh, council colleagues, and I, I would like to note that my motion tonight is being seconded by Councillor Narinder Nan of Ward 3. And will it be dealt with today? Yes. 
Okay, I mean, because we, we all know about council procedures. I mean, sometimes it can be received, sometimes it can be a notice of motion, sometimes they can, you know, they can table it. There's a number of things that can happen. Do you get the sense, again, that the, there's an appetite within your council colleagues to, to come clean and, and, to, and to address this issue head on? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but to your point about process, and I'm also on the public record over the weekend, I believe, saying that, yes, you know, there is a weaponization of procedure that can be used to halt agendas, um, precipitate agendas, uh, and, and that's, part of, that's been part of, certainly, part of my learning experience uh, sometimes. Yep. Uh, for those of us who have been in public life in the past and gone through this, and, and I've mentioned this to the listeners, and this is by no means a, a way of trying to offer excuses here, uh, but no matter how much time you've spent uh, observing city council or working with council from either staff position or from a position like this, it's still rather daunting when you're sitting around that table with those colleagues, uh, some of who have got a lot more experience in situation and know how to do the ropes, and I can understand that. Uh, in that, and again, I'm, I'm hypothesizing here, if this decision was coming before you now, after you and your colleagues, and even some of the newer colleagues on council have been been around for a while, would there have been a different outcome? If it had been coming, if it for if me, it happened today, um, again, my <laughs> response to that is, I have, on matters of this, been absolutely consistent. Full public disclosure. We must uphold the public trust and confidence that has been given to us. Um, in, I have made those arguments. Now, uh, procedurally, sometimes you get tripped up on, uh, you know, two weeks later when it comes before council and, and voting, but absolutely, I have been consistent. And, and, and we understand that, and we understand the positions of some of the other people, and that's why I say we'll, we'll never know what vote or who said what behind these the closed-door meetings and situations like this, but I'm getting the sense that this certainly was not a unanimous decision by council, that there were some dissenting voices that, that obviously were overruled in, in that circumstance. And that's, the, I think, the concern a lot of people have right now, is that council has had a propensity, not just this council, but past councils too, to kick issues down the road and hoping that eventually they're just going to go away. Uh, this one's not going to go away. I mean, there are huge, huge ramifications uh, to what has happened here. And I, don't, I mean, the incident itself and, of course, the handling of that as well. Uh, and, and obviously, I think council right now, Maureen, has, a, I think, an obligation uh, to come clean on this. And I think your motion addresses that. And hopefully council is going to understand the gravity of the situation. Uh, how much information is there that, that the public can, will hopefully, with, if your motion is successful, uh, be able to have their hands on and to get a fuller understanding as to what happened and why? Well, I think there's um, well, there's there's a considerable amount of uh, information. Um, there's uh, consultant reports. Um, there, um, just so so you know, um, there is a minister's minister's order that was issued in August and updated in November. Um, I asked in writing for a copy of that order in the fall. And it was not provided to me. I issued my own FOI to the Ministry of the Environment uh, before this thing, before this story um, was in the Spectator. Um, and I asked for a copy of the minister's order, and I asked for a number of other things. Um, 
and my intent was if I could get it through those means, I fully intended to release the document. But you see, this is what's throwing gasoline on the fire, though, Maureen. I mean, what you've outlined here is yet another example of counsel not giving the proper tools and the proper information to make an informed decision. Uh, there was information that was uh, that should have been available to counselors, and it's not being made available by staff. And th- this is this is making a bad situation worse. It's a bad situation. We'll be watching uh, very closely and see just how your colleagues respond to this later on today, and um, I'm certain we'll have more discussions about this as we go forward. Maureen, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Bill. That's uh, Ward 1 Counselor Maureen Wilson, who obviously, uh, let's, let's, I'm not trying to put words in her mouth, but it's, I think it's obvious here that she was not in compliance with uh, the City Council decision to keep this hush-hush for as long as it has happened. And uh, there, as we say, I know John Paul Danko was on the program earlier when, uh, when I was still out in Calgary, uh, expressed very similar feelings about this, and uh, we'll see later on today whether or not there are going to be more counselors that uh, that show some sense of remorse that that maybe they just blew this, and uh, it's going to take an awfully long time and an awful lot of effort by an awful lot of people on council to try to restore whatever trust has been broken in this situation. And that's not even addressing the issue; that's addressing council's behavior and council's handling of this issue, and that's that's what they need to address today. <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week on Tuesday specifically, Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott was in town uh, to announce that Hamilton will be among the first cities in Ontario to undergo the provincial government's major changes to the health care delivery system. Uh, what they undressed, uh, or un- 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 unveiled, I guess they undressed them for the same thing, was the Hamilton Health Team to deliver health care now. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Sandy Shaw. She is the uh, NDP MPP for Hamilton West, Ancaster, and Dundas. Uh, f- uh, first of all, on a very busy day, Sandy, thanks for being with us. Good to have you on the show again. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Yeah, we're busy down here. We've got our, our sewer gate problems here at the province as well. So, Well, I'm going to get into that in a couple of seconds, and I know you've got some opinions on, on our, our other issue that uh, we're going to talk about sure. and have talked about too. But, but let's, let's get to this issue. And I guess the first question I have is, as I see this, and we, we've had the minister on in the past as she was talking about this system and revamping it. And, and I'm not going to sit here for one second and try to say that and justify the system as it was and say, well, that was great. It was working beautifully because it wasn't. There were some things that had to be done. But do we really need to have blow the whole thing up here in, in the province of Ontario and start from square one, which is what this government seems to be doing? Well, that's a fantastic question. And, uh, you know, so far this, this minister and also this government never really answers good questions like that. And so, you know, you're right. We've sort of seen this movie before. I mean, we had the lens for, for so long. And I agree with you that there is so much broken about the system. I mean, every single one of us has a story about having to access health care, about having loved ones waiting in the hallway. We know all about that. And so I guess I would say or I would question the wisdom in just trying to create another bureaucracy um, and, and talk about you know changing the administration when this announcement that uh, the minister came to Hamilton to make didn't come with any funding attached to it. Yeah, let's talk about that uh, because even if we want to go back to the past system, and uh, I don't think we'd want to go down that road, uh, the, the the consistent criticism of the system, Sandy, has always been underfunding. I mean, they've announced these fabulous ideas about cooperation and, and partnerships, and and and, you know, and and let's you know make sure that this this healthcare system is 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 going to be available, and you can transition from one element to the other. That, and that's all fabulous stuff, and it sounds great. But if you don't offer the resources and the funding for it, it's never going to work. 
That's absolutely the case. I mean, it just seems obvious to everyone that that is the case. You know, I mean, this when the the Ford government's part of their 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 cuts included impacts to our health care system. So you know, during the first budget, the Ontario Health Association said that they needed six hundred and fifty six million dollars just to to maintain the status quo. And as we know, the status quo was already not good enough. And the the government gave them way less than that. You know, something almost half of what they were requesting. And so you know, they're already underfunded and the FAO the financial accountability office ca- officer came out with a report that said that uh, we a uh, 2.7 billion dollars will be cut out of our health care system over the next two years and so my question is um, will creating this new administrative uh, bu- bureaucratic body uh, help to reduce you know 2.7 billion dollars that are not going to be going into our health care system well, and, and I know that this it's an apples and oranges situation, but we heard the same thing about the education uh, uh, announcements that they have made and, and the policy changes that they made there, too. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I'll go back to Doug Ford's promise, and it was a promise that he made not just during the election campaign, but even after he was sworn in as premier, that not one person was going to lose their job as they found, quote-unquote, efficiencies here. Uh, we already know that thousands upon thousands of teachers are going to lose their jobs, already have in many cases. And the same thing is happening with health care. I mean, it's, it's one thing for the minister to come in here and say, this is the system. Boy, this is going to be beautiful. Talk to the people that work in the system, and, and they'll tell you the hardships that they're enduring right now. And it's, not a, it's, a, it's only going to get worse. Worse, Sandy, because there's going to be less money next year. That's exactly the case, and you know, we—the only reason, in my opinion, that this healthcare system is even hanging together—it's the fantastic healthcare workers. You know, the people that put in the extra hours, the long hours uh, that just maintain this thing. And, and you know, we have some of the most fantastic healthcare workers in the world, and they don't get praised enough in a in a in a terrible situation where they are not getting uh, help from their government, if you ask me. And so, you know, the questions that we're asking about frontline service delivery are really, really important, that we need to know that you can make all the changes, you know, frit around the edges, as you say, creating another, you know, super healthcare bureaucracy. But at the end of the day, we need people working in those hospitals in our healthcare facilities. And, you know, we get up in the house every single day and we talk about nurses that are being laid off you know, tens to hundreds of nurses that are being laid off all across the province, not just in Hamilton, but in northern Ontario, west, you know, east, all parts of Ontario. Um, nurses and healthcare providers, the, the front line service providers are being laid off. And, you know, the, the thing that is, is so maddening about this, infuriating, is that this government will not answer questions about the accountability of these changes. So, really, a simple question that I would like to know is how much are you spending to, to change this, the administration of this. Like, really, how much are, is, are these, um, ch- these this bureaucratic super agency changes, how much are they costing, and are those, those costs being taken out of direct service provision? That's a really important question, one that the government and the minister has not asked, answered, even though we've asked it time and time again in question period and through other means to try and get good answers for the people of Hamilton and the people of Ontario. Sandy, this is not as complex as, as the government seems to want to make this in a situation like this. If, if their stated goal, and I know the minister mentioned it, I guess, again on Tuesday when she was here in town, is to end hallway medicine. I mean, that was one of the mantras of, of the Ford policy and the Ford government. 
Uh, it's it, The simple answer to this is if you want to get people out of the hallways in these hospitals that are laying on gurneys, you have to have beds upstairs for them. And that means, okay, to have those beds, you've got to have long-term care facilities or at-home care for people that probably don't really need to be in the hospital but have to be there because those other facilities aren't available for them. It, this, it's, it's not that complex. It's not that difficult. But that's only going to work if they make a commitment to supply not just the beds in those other facilities but the staff to look after the people in those beds. I mean, it just seems quite obvious to me and probably to most of your listeners. I mean, it's not, it's not complex. I mean, it is a system that requires, to be, it requires uh, uh, appropriate resources. I mean, how often have we talked about um, code zeros in Hamilton? And that's, you know, that's the front end of a system. So, Sandy, it's the new normal zero. now. We, we, remember, we were outraged when we heard that, my God, that's happening. And it's worse now than ever, and we just oh, there's another code zero. It, it, exactly, and and you know we we did have a grandmother that died in Hamilton, uh, waiting for an ambulance. And so how many more how many more tragedies do, do we need uh, for the ministry to sit up and pay attention to this? And you know, and at the other end, when we talk about, uh, I mean, the the minister's goal of ending hall, hall, hallway health care is admirable, and we share in that goal. Everyone shares in that goal. Sure. You know, but to to take. Uh, you know, this this massive administrative bureaucracy changes, you know, they're not going to help people that are right now in hallways. They're not going to help people that are sitting at home, seniors waiting for proper proper home care. I mean, we've got our personal support workers. Uh, we, they are, they're working in, in just abominable conditions trying to serve our seniors. And so, you know, taking this time to create this, uh, these uh, Ontario health teams, this agency, you know, maybe we'll see the results of that down the road, maybe, you know, five years or so. You know, we had a, a former Ontario Deputy Health Minister who said that when you make these changes, there's a tendency toward a period of chaos that can last as long as five years. And I would say right now, this is not going to help people who are currently needing to be taken care of. Um, so, you know, it, it's great that they've done this and some of their goals are admirable about streamlining services. That's great. But in the meantime, people are sitting in hallways waiting to be cared for. And, and this is how um, the, the government will, will spin things like this. I mean, these are cleverly written public announcements, Sandy. You've, been, yes. you've seen these before. And, and you're right. I mean, the minister talked about this. We want to be able to help people to transition, uh, for instance, from, from primary care, in other words, to a hospital, maybe to home care and, uh, and, or to a long-term care facility, whatever the case might be. And we're going to make those arrangements before they even leave the hospital. Well, that sounds fabulous, except yeah. that once you start, you pick up the phone and say, okay, uh, Mrs. Shaw has to go over here. Now. Well, sorry, there are no beds. Bingo! Exactly. That's it's it's end. You just ran into a big block. So you know what you promised and what you can deliver are two different things here. Exactly, and so focus your attention on the real crisis. Tens of thousands of seniors across Ontario are right now on waiting lists to get into long-term care. There's tens of thousands of seniors who are in homes right now who can't get access to home care. So there's a crisis right there. So making these pretty announcements and these these you know these plans um, are not going to stem the tide, deal with the, the crisis and the emergency that we're facing right now. And so I agree with you. This is a government that is you know full of pretty words, uh, but look at their actions and look at the outcomes. And the outcomes 
are not good. In fact, we're going from bad to worse in terms of our health care system. Well, and especially because I know that the government has said, well, we are going to open up new beds. I mean, you know, come on, Bill, smarten up here. But well, here's how they do this, though. They just increase the nurse-to-patient ratio. Uh, they, you know, they don't hire more staff for this, and, and the nurses who are already suffering from, from exhaustion and, and, and depression because of exactly. the workload that they're under right now said, okay, instead of looking after 20 patients, you're now going to look after 25 uh, because we've added a few new beds. Well, that's not really solving the problem. Well, exactly. And two things I want to say about that. First of all, they're reannouncing uh, beds that the Liberals promised. Yeah. And these are announcements. And if you actually see how many beds that this government has actually opened despite their promises, 21 new long-term care beds have been opened under their watch. 21 for the province. So that's just unbelievable. And, the, and you know, and the, the second part of all of this, as you said, is it really, really does, uh, we really need, need to face and look at what is happening right now. So, you know, I, did, I visited Wentworth Lodge and to do, talk to some of the personal support workers there. You know what they told me? I mean, the stories are heartbreaking because they say, we care so much about these patients. You know, we're with them day in and day out. We know their stories. They said we're probably going to spend their, their last moments of their life with them. So they care deeply about these, these, these folks that they're, they're taking care of. And they said that because they're so understaffed, they have to start getting patients dressed at 4.30 in the morning to get them down in time for breakfast. So they get them dressed, they sit them in the hall, they get the next patient dressed, sit them in the hall, so they can all get them down to breakfast and fed at, at, at the same time. I mean, that's abysmal. And, so, and this is not what the government's addressing. Instead, they've got this nice, you know, this nice announcement about, you know, a system that, you know, maybe there will be efficiencies and maybe it'll be, it will pr- pr- provide seamless care. I hope it's true. But we're not going to see that today. We're not going to see it next year, the year after. You know, we, while at the same time we have, you know, our seniors, I mean, the visual of a senior being woken up at 4.30 in the morning just so she can be fed, it's appalling. It is. Uh, we'll stay on this story, obviously, as I know you will, as this starts to roll out, and we'll see how what kind of an impact it's going to have. Uh, I want to change gears here. We've got a couple of minutes left here, okay. uh, and I want to talk about uh, well, what many people have dubbed, of course, a sewage gate. Uh, that, of course, yes. that's the spill that occurred at, uh, in the Shadow Creek and, of course, up there. Uh, there's two elements to this. We just talked with Maureen Wilson from City Council. Yesterday, we talked with Mayor Eisenberger about this. The other side of this coin, though, uh, Sandy, as you well know, is the Ministry of, of uh, the Environment was aware of this as well, and and said and did nothing about this, except for sending the city council a letter saying, oh, by the way, you should let people know about this. They never followed up on this. You've raised this in the legislature. Do you get any answer, any response, any explanation from the the government about this? Well, what's your best guess, Bill? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me see. Uh, There could be no, or there could be uh, maybe. uh, Who knows? Yeah, exactly. All of the above. No no adequate answers. And I just want to make sure that what you said is absolutely correct. The city has done what the city did. You know, this incident occurred, and the city decided to conduct themselves in the way that they did. Uh, which remains, you know, a real concern for people. But the ministry knew all along. I mean, let's just put it this way. The ministry knew that, uh, who, who, let's be clear, the Ministry of Environment is the ultimate reporting body for the city. The ministry knew that 24 billion liters of sewage leaked into Coots Paradise, and they also knew that the city, the city chose not to tell the residents. So the city didn't tell us, and the ministry didn't step in, which is their purview, to make sure either the city told us or they themselves did it. I mean, really, I, I would like to imagine that there was a conversation where the ministry says to the city, listen, 
either you tell your residents or we will. And that didn't happen. This was not insignificant. This is not, oh my gosh, you know, there's a couple of gallons of stuff dumped out, which is bad enough in in itself. Over a four-year period, billions of liters dumping into here, and the ministry didn't see fit to say, hey, wait a second, uh, you know, the public needs to know about this. And the public, absolutely, the public, and and, you know, as, as we've said, people... All, all kinds of people were calling both the city and the ministry to say, what is going on here? You know, we had the two Indigenous women who raised the alarm, and their voices went unheard. I mean, they, I believe, also let the ministry know, as well as city council, that this is, I mean, what? where is this foul sewage, you know, and refuse coming from? So we had a, a, such an opportunity, uh, you know, before 2018, to stop this, and nobody listened to the people that were raising alarms, which is so um, heartbreaking that we could have prevented the magnitude of, a, of this had anybody listened. And, you know, it raises questions as to, are you telling me that nobody was testing this water? And I don't know. I mean, I've been trying to get questions from the ministry. What is your testing regime? What what sampling do you do? Does no one do sampling in, in, a, in a creek that even even in the best of, of situations, the combined sewer overflow will, will discharge into, to, to, into the creek, and we've known that. So nobody is testing this water. So either they were testing it, and what, what do they do with those samples, uh, which is a huge question that we need answers to, or they weren't testing, and my gosh, then we have an entirely different problem. So, you know, the minister didn't, doesn't answer questions in question period. You know, they, call it, they don't call it question period. They don't call it answer period, right? They just call it question period because you don't get any answers. I sent the minister a letter, no response. And so yesterday I filed a freedom of information request trying to get at all those important pieces of uh, information, including the, the report, you know, the, the report that was submitted in 2018 uh, and that will probably provide a lot of information you know, um, it's a tragedy, and it has happened, but we need to get answers from those that are accountable to make sure this never, ever happens again. Why did none of those reports see the light of day? That's, that's the question I've asked a number of people on council, and they, they say they're bound by confidentiality. But at some point, we've got to open the door here and, 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 and find out exactly what went on and how long this went on. And, and I understand that, that the, the concern here is, as, as we were told anyway by the mayor yesterday, that, well, you know, the danger is past, and, and it's, it's not as bad as it was four years ago. But the issue here is, 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 a, is a, a breach of trust. Uh, and by city council, and and we'll do we'll, we'll deal with that at the municipal level with our councillors. But if if they're not going to do their job, Sandy, you've got to expect that the provincial government, which has oversight over this, is going to do theirs. The question I've got right now, since nobody did anything, who's got our back here? Exactly. I mean, that's the question. Who has our back? Is is, is it up to me and you to go and test the water ourselves and find out whether it's okay? Well, sadly, I think that's what was happening. You know, I think actually individuals were raising the alarm. You know, people that use Coots Paradise and walk their dogs Yeah, but there. They, nobody was listening to them. Exactly. Nobody was listening to them. And, you know, I mean, council can, can uh, you know, talk about their breach of trust and their, their rules of confidentiality, and that's the city's role to determine what they should and shouldn't have done. But the ministry is not bound by that those same rules of confidentiality. So the ministry had the ultimate... Uh, responsibility to keep us informed, and the ministry also failed us hugely. And you know, people deserve to know what's in our water. We deserve to know what's in our water. And if the city's not going to keep us informed, 
wouldn't you just think, as an average citizen, think, well, we have a ministry of environment. We have a ministry of health. Surely, surely, I don't have to do it as an individual citizen. Surely, like you said, Bill, there's somebody who's looking out for us. And it sadly appears that, in fact, there was nobody looking out for us. Very distressing. Sandy, we're just about out of time. Thanks, as always, for the insight. We'll stay in touch on this. It, yeah, Bill, you take care. Sandy Shaw, of course, uh, the MPP for uh, Hamilton West, Ancaster, and Dundas. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.